0: The following is a presentation of the Six Arrows Radio Network. Welcome to the Modern Christian Men Podcast with your host, Kale Nelson. It's Cale with the Modern Christian Men Show. Thank you for tuning in. This is one of my favorite – I say that every time, do I not – one of my favorite interviews that I've been able to share with you. And let me tell you this, one of the one of the most influential voices in my life right now, outside of Jesus himself, uh, his best friend, my wife, Carla, and others that are close to me, Phil Cook is in Hollywood, California, changing the way that entertainment is done, especially in the mode of kingdom work. So join me now, if you will, welcoming Phil Cook to the podcast. All right. So I want to welcome one of my favorite Twitter follows that I have, as well as one of my favorite authors and favorite podcasters. There's just so many favorites in this. I'm, I'm coming off like a huge fanboy, but in, <laughs> in, in, in honesty, I have learned so much from following this guy, reading his material and listening to his podcast. It's Phil Cook from, it's now Cook Media Group. Thank you for being here with us.
1: Thank you, Cale. I'm thrilled to be here. I've enjoyed following you on Twitter as well, so this will be good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, l- tell me a little bit about Phil Cook.
0: How did a preacher's kid from North Carolina wind up in Hollywood influencing people about Jesus on the left coast?
1: <laughs> well, I'm a preacher's kid, actually. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. My dad was a pastor. And, uh, when I was in high school, um, and by the way, I had no idea that this is what I would do for a living. In fact, when I went to college, I had even, I didn't even know what I would major in. But, uh, when I was in high school, me and a group of friends loved to make movies and we made short films. We took my dad's super eight movie camera. That's how old I am. And uh, we made army movies and space movies and mafia movies and all kind of stuff. And, um, I thought when I went to college a thousand miles away, I thought, well, maybe I'll find some people there that want to do this. Never thinking that this is, this is something you do for a living. Mm. And, uh, the, the, my freshman year, I was unpacking my suitcase in the dorm and a couple of my films fell out. Guy crossed the hall who had been taking a film class, saw them, asked me about them. and, Offered to take me down to the film department one night and show me how to actually edit the things. I didn't even know you could cut film back in those days. Went went down there with him. We worked on him for a couple hours and the professor happened to be there working on a project of his. And late that night as he was leaving, he stopped at our little table and um, just said, I've been watching your little movie over my shoulder, over your shoulder. He said, and I've got students that have been doing this for years and don't, don't do this well. Would you mind if I showed your film in my class tomorrow? So I said, sure, if I could sit on the back row, I'd love to. So he showed my little movie, and it was a terrible – trust me, it was a terrible film. But it was – I made this film, and he showed it in his class the next day. And when it was over, people started talking about it. And this thought came to me. I don't know if it was a download from God or this crystal clear revelation or what, but I had this thought that if I can do something with a camera that makes people talk like this, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I literally changed my major that day and, um, I have never looked back. So that was a, that was a real life changing moment for me.
0: Now you, you got into Hollywood after you got out of college and you, you had a good job from what I understand, but then that went away and you were forced to become with your wife, your own thing. That's, that's kind of a punch in the gut. Is it not coming off the experience? It was interesting.
1: Yeah. I came to LA, uh, right after college, but, uh, I went back to the Midwest. And worked at a production company there for years, a big ministry, and um, um, I I was there for quite a while. And I've, you know, I I really all the time felt God was calling me to Hollywood. But I'm a, I'm great at rationalizing things, and probably a lot of the men listening to this, uh, you know, the same way. I I knew God wanted me to go to L.A., but I kept thinking, you know, I can travel to L.A. I've got good schools with my kids. We've got all our friends are here. I've got a good job. I've got a good, good church. You know, I could probably do this long distance. And uh, at 36 years old, I finally got fired. And I'm convinced that it wasn't the guy that fired me. It was God fired me. I, I read recently the two most addictive substances on the planet are heroin and a regular paycheck. <laughs> I, got, I got addicted to the regular paycheck, and I think God just needed to shove me out of the nest. So we came to L.A. That was 1991. We came to L.A., Launched our little company, Cook Pictures, that became, as you say, Cook Media Group now. And, um, it's, we just have been going ever since. So it was the right thing to do. I probably should have done it earlier. And, and I think I've learned to listen to God's voice a little, a little closer. So I don't have to get fired quite so much, but, uh, whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. So
0: 36, I mean, it's not like you're a kid straight out of college. You, you have children by then, I'm assuming, and yeah. you're comfortable. Everybody's happy. Mama's happy. But yeah, 36, man, starting over at 36, I'm, I just turned 45 back the first of the year, right before the first year. And at 36, even, you know, 11 years, uh, nine years ago, I couldn't imagine starting over, uh, and, and especially jumping headfirst into Hollyweird, which everybody's afraid of. And I want to talk about that later. But, sure. I mean, you felt called there. You were definitively called, uh, Can, can you kind of encourage the guys listening to this? If, if they have a, an unction, you know, I'm, I'm church of God, so I've got that word in my, my library now. (laughs) I didn't, I I didn't grow up that way, but I've been adopted. You know what I mean? I love that word. That's a great one. It's one of my favorite words. I can blame everything (laughs) on an unction. Yeah. But, uh, so you, these guys that, that may, it may not be ministry, but it might be that God is, is speaking to them. Um, can can you just kinda encourage them a little bit with, with some things you've seen over the years where you did or didn't or you've watched someone else not or do it and how that's changed and affected things around them?
1: Absolutely. I think that's a great question. I, I uh you know, most people say that God opens doors for them. With me, God shuts doors because I'm always trying everything. I'm looking at this option and that option and should I do that, should I do that? And so I think God shuts more doors than anything else just to keep me in line. But um I do think that I tell people very often that it, when you hit a wall, which I did getting fired, when you hit an absolute wall, it's actually the best thing that could have ever happened because your decision is made. You don't have to fluctuate. You don't have to waffle. you, you Your decision is made. And so for me, I had no other choice. I knew there was no other kind of work like that for me in, in the city where I was in. I had to make a move to L.A., and so it was pretty much the decision already done. So first of all I would tell people that uh, don't worry about hitting the wall because it's it could be a great great thing for you if you look at it. The second thing is you know change is really hard for people. I wrote a book years ago called Jolt about positioning yourself in this world of constant change we live in and I discovered uh, writing the book that the vast Majority of heart open heart surgery patients within two years go back to their old lifestyle. You know, the cheeseburgers and the cigarettes that got them there in the first place, which means if the threat of death doesn't make you change, what in the world will? So most people just don't like change. And I think that we have to, if we're really going to listen to what God's saying to us and really going to, and we're serious about following him, I think we need to understand that, hey, change is coming whether we like it or not. Change is happening whether we're ready or not. So we have a choice. We can either step out of the game and just quit playing altogether or just understand that change is going to happen. So be ready for it.
0: When you left the Midwest to go to L.A., did you have anything lined up or were you just kind of going out there saying, I'll make it happen when we get there?
1: Well, I had worked for a number of years for a number of ministries kind of on the side, helping them with projects, um, had a lot of relations out there, relationships. Mm -hmm. So when I got fired, um, once the word got on the street, uh, people would start to call. And that's something I think that – I don't think we make enough of networking. You know, in the 80s, networking was – a An obnoxious term and people hated it because it meant uh, I'm using you to get something. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, developing a web of relationships out there with people is always good. You know, the truth is, there's an old advertising saying that when sales are down, it's too late to advertise. (laughs) You should be advertising. You should be meeting people, talking to people when things are going well. So when you do hit that wall, uh, you've got relationships you can go to. And I did a project for Phillips Petroleum that led into a whole series of things. We created a television show for a guy in Houston named Joel Osteen. Um, We just did a number of things pretty quickly that got us on the map. So, But had I not had those kind of relationships, I would have been in real trouble. And here's the thing, Kayla, I think is really important. When people have a full-time job, they don't think about the next, the next position, the next job. And they don't think about who should I be meeting just in case something happens. And I just really feel very strongly that when you're, even when you have a job, you think things are okay, that's the time to be working it because I think the biggest thing I see out there when people get laid off when they get fired they are stunned i mean they're they 're just shocked and they have absolutely no idea what to do, where to turn, who to talk to and um, So my feeling is never ever get over the feeling that you could be fired tomorrow you know that that level of guilt keeps you on your toes and makes for uh, a lot softer landing should something terrible happen
0: well especially in today 's market where everything is so volatile I mean when my dad came up. You know, his, his, both his folks retired from the mill. You remember yes. that from Charlotte, right? So, oh, dad my dad was to, a mill worker. Yeah. Dad went to the, dad worked in the mill. Then he got a work, got a job with Southern Bale. You remember them. Yes. And then, uh, he spent the next 38 plus years in telecom. And, and then he looked at me coming out of high school in 92 and he said, So you need to get a job and you need to, you go to college, you get a job, you, you get a mortgage, you get a car payment, you get married. And that was kind of the plan back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. But, man, everything is so different now. You almost have to be thinking forward all the time. And this is where folks really need to find the Phil Cook of personal marketing and branding themselves as a just-in-case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. My dad grew up in the mill town. Everybody in my family literally worked at the mill their whole life. Um, in fact, in the town we lived that we lived in, uh, when you graduated from high school, you automatically got a job in the mill <laughs> and so But fortunately, the war broke out, and my dad lasted about two weeks in the mill he said i just couldn 't take that and he went out and joined the Marine Corps, fought the Japanese in World War two. And uh fortunately, had that not happened, I might be folding sheets and towels today. <laughs> um, who knows? But uh I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. But you're right. It, it's a different world that we live in. And, you know, the statistics are constantly changing. They're actually going up as far as the number of jobs the typical person has in an entire lifetime or the number of places they work. And so I think – Put it this way, my feeling is your people skills, your ability to deal with people, your, your ability to understand how to get your next job are just as important as the skills it takes to actually do the job because today we spend so much time trying to get to the next level, trying to get to the next job that uh, if we're not paying attention to how to do that well, we're simply going to crash.
0: And, and in the heated political climate that I'm sure you're experiencing in LA and just, you know, the day to day mundane thing here in South Carolina, uh, social media is so big and I'm, we'll probably talk about social media a couple of times, but right here, is this a good time to say, Hey, be careful, be smart, be Jesus on social media? Because as you have to potentially navigate a job change or something, that's become a big deal when people are are looking at just more than your resume anymore. And if you're out, you know, being just a jerkwad on the Internet,
1: will will that potentially cause folks problems? Absolutely. No question. In fact, I, I can guarantee you that when you go in for a job interview, the minute you walk out the door, the first thing that employer is going to do is start Googling your name. And, um, you know, I know numerous people. Uh, in fact, it's become, it's become kind of epidemic among 20-somethings today that they're not getting jobs because of their Facebook history wow. and, or their, their Twitter or Instagram history. In fact, you know, those shots of you throwing up after being drunk on spring break that you thought were so cute in high school or college. They're not so cute to that employer yeah. and um, we're finding an epidemic of young people having struggling to get a job because what employees are finding on social media. So uh, it's, it's a really important time to go back and clean up that feed. If you know, if you've had, <laughs> had some, just like to sanctify your feed. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, uh, and be thinking about that in the future. And, you know, it's funny, just the smallest things. I, I just think that, that, Social media can actually be a very powerful tool for building your career um, i don 't care if you 're a plumber, if you 're an attorney if you 're a coach if you 're a media person like me, um, it, you can use social media to become an expert, become an authority in your area and uh, for instance I, I have a friend dan rockwell uh, he has he 's on online at leadershipfreak.com dot com and his social media handles are all leadership freak i 'd encourage you to check him out because he 's brilliant. And he's got like a quarter of a million Twitter followers. And it's only because all he talks about is leadership. He doesn't go on Twitter and talk about sports. He doesn't talk about politics. He doesn't talk about problems in his family. He's the leadership guy. So everybody knows that if I go to Dan Rockwell, if I go to Leadership Freak, I'm going to get leadership ideas, techniques, uh, principles. And so as a result, he's got a quarter of a million people following him. On Twitter, he's going to have a job for the rest of his life. He's go, going around consulting with companies. So it's a great example of how he, anybody could start to build, use your social media to build your reputation, build your careers and authority. Um, that will make a dramatic difference. I just think in many ways your social media results are better than your resume these days because people really go to that, and they really rely on that. So
0: talking about your friend, the leadership freak, uh, that that takes me to the Phil Cookbook. The uh, Phil Cookbook. That sounds yeah, funny. yeah. That's that's the one big thing. So his one yeah. big thing is leadership. Phil's one big thing is media and how it affects the world. Um, yeah, it, can we get too focused on one big thing? Say, like we're a pastor and yeah. and we're focused entirely on our job as pastor of our flock of one hundred and fifty. And 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 can we miss something by focusing too much, or is it really important whether we're a pastor or bivocational, vocational, if we're working in corporate or like you say we're self-employed, we're a plumber.
1: Can we well, overdo sh- that? That's a great question, actually. And I spent about 40 years going through this with leaders and organizations and major nonprofits and ministries and churches. And what I've discovered is that the people that get noticed out there are not the people that are pretty good at a lot of things. The people that really get noticed are people who are extraordinary at one big thing. Now, here's the thing about it. That one big thing is not a job. It's not about being a coach or being a teacher or being an insurance salesman or being a real estate guy or being a television personality, that one big thing is more the lens you view life through. Uh, Let me give you an example. Most of my adult life, Jack Hayford was my pastor here in L.A., Church on the Way. I I consider Jack the Protestant Pope. I think he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's long been retired now, but you. here's the thing about Jack. I've heard him preach probably a thousand sermons in the 20-some years we went there. However, if you cut Jack, he will bleed worship. Uh, it's it's the lens he sees everything through he's written five books on worship he's written a 100 worship songs for 20 some years in our church he didn't just preach he led the worship he was the worship leader so i don't care if he preaches on family issues or forgiveness or the resurrection or finances whatever he preaches on he does it through the lens of worship so a big part of this is in this credibly hyper competitive we culture we live in People want an easy hook, a handle for you. You know, who is Kale? Who is Phil? Who is Jack? Who is who, whoever? And so what I've discovered is figuring out that one big thing, that thing I'm incredibly passionate about, the thing I wake up in the morning thinking about, the thing I go to bed at night thinking about. Um, that's the way. It doesn't mean that's all you do for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. but it kind of becomes the lens, the perspective that you see life through. So with me, I love sports. I, I'm, I'm crazy about football. I love all <laughs> kind of snow skiing. I love. I'm interested in all kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But you, as you mentioned, that intersection of faith, media, and culture is kind of the way I view the world. So I'm going to look at any of those things from that perspective. Whether I'm speaking, whether I'm writing. Uh, whether I'm working on my blog or working with clients um I'm going to do it through that perspective and that makes and here's the deal it makes me unique you know that you may be a coach out there for instance and there are thousands of coaches just like you but the truth is there's only one coach with your background your history your perspective and that lens that you look for that one big thing that you're passionate about there's only one of you and if you can figure out what that is that immediately makes you stand out. And by the way, while it's, it may seem like that's narrowing your options, it's actually opening up your options because it's it's making you unique, and that's what matters.
0: Because we have, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm thinking we have so many people who really don't know the obt. I mean, they're just oh. they're just kind of floundering. And since they don't know, they're going off in so many different directions and trying to find or running away from, like I did for many years. So they're they're out there and they they're they're so
1: broad they can't be noticed anywhere. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. And and the truth is, it's not a mystical thing. As you mentioned in my book One Big Thing Discovering What You Were Born to Do, I talk about uh three or four steps that will help people figure it out. And it's it's more of, you know, uh, one of the suggestions I put in the book is uh, remember back to high school uh, when you sat around the prom committee or the homecoming committee and everybody said, you know, Bob, you're you're good with numbers. Why don't you do the budget? Or Susan, you're great in front of people. Why don't you host or Sam? You're really creative. Why don't you come up with a theme? Other people notice what your gift is sometimes long before you do. And so think back to the times that people looked at you and said, you know what? You're creative or you're good with people or you're this. Those kind of things from your past can start to help you figure out what is that thing that I do well. And of course, other things that, you know, what comes easy for you? I, I used to direct, I used to direct a lot of sports for ESPN on television early in my career. And I would meet athletes who would tell me, you know, Phil, I was just the fastest guy on the block growing up or I was the guy that could always catch the ball no matter what. And sometimes we don't think about what comes easy for us. What is what is what are you really good at? Um, we we just somehow discount the fact that um, we have gifts and talents that our friends and other people don't seem to have. And if we start really focusing on that gift or that talent or that ability, who knows how far we could go? Because we're, we're all we all have that in some capacity.
0: Now, does the one big thing have to turn into a salary? Or can it be the ministerial gift back to the body uh, by kind of like, I guess you'd say in air quotes, by vocational or something to share that with the kingdom?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that, um, I, I, find I, I've run, I have a blog at Philcook.com, Cook with an E, by the way, if I may shamelessly felt absolutely. Um, and my blog, I've written a couple posts, um, in the last year or two on the number of brilliant people who, had day jobs. Uh, you know, A good example is William Faulkner, one of the greatest novelists in American history, had a day job. He was the postmaster in Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, there are all kinds of Philip Glass... Um, Philip Glass had a day job. In fact, he was a plumber, enjoyed doing plumbing work. And I, I, had, a, I had a friend one time that actually had him come and fix his faucet. <laughs> and um, Kurt Vonnegut, one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century, was a sob salesman. So what, what I'm finding is people in Hollywood, people who are great writers and artists and thinkers, often will have a day job. So the one big thing they discover, maybe that leads to financial success and you can live off that. And It's great when it happens. But sometimes it's more of a calling. It's more of a something that you feel I'm going to do no matter what. I mean writing is a good example for me. I don't get rich writing by any means, but I've written about eight books, and uh, people love them, and, and they become calling cards for me. They've helped us with our business. They get me invitations to speak, but they're not profit centers for me or our company at all, but I'm so obsessed with writing. I just have to do I have to get it out, so I'm happy to write for free no matter what. Don't tell my publisher that, but – um <laughs> I'm happy to write for free. So it, it it could go either way. The key is your life will be so much more fulfilled when you figure it out and you're able to do it whether you get paid or not.
0: The other day I was listening and I was getting caught up. I'd, I'd, I'd been sick and I'd kind of gotten behind on my podcast listening, and I listened to the Stop Giving Advice When You're Not Asked For It episode. And, oh, it just hit me in the face, you know, because we're all so much smarter than everybody else. Oh, yeah. And and I listened to it, and I said, oh, I am going to implement this. This is my new one big thing for this week. I'm not going to be offering advice everywhere. And then then my cousin Rob sends an email from his ministry, and it's just a huge wall of text. And I I text him on the phone, and I said, call me when you can. he calls me and said, hey, man, I'm sorry I asked you to call me. And he said, why? I said, because... I want to offer you some advice that you haven't asked for. And I've told myself I'm not going to allow myself to do that. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, Phil Cook, man. He's got me messed up. <laughs> and I said, we've got to get you. I said, can I give you some advice you didn't ask for? And if you'll give me permission, I'll share. And he said, sure. So I said, MailChimp.com, man. Just go look it up. We'll figure out how to make you some cool emails for your ministry. But I caught myself, because here I was, thought I had this thing figured out, I because it worked well for me with my ham radio show, and, and I – you know, you've done things and they work, so you see a mess and you try to fix it. But that spoke, that show spoke to me directly. Um, and, and speaking of all these different types of callings and, and jobs and, and abilities and whatever, I know some of us who were in a position, like, like with my ham radio show, it does create that expert of the field thing. Although I was kind of the dumb guy asking the questions, I still became an expert in the field of asking the dumb questions everybody was afraid to ask. In yeah. that in that genre. But we all think we have something to offer. How do we really stop for just a minute? And, and I'll put a link to that particular podcast episode in our show notes. But how can we stop for just a minute and catch ourselves so that we don't get in front of somebody's learning?
1: That's a great idea. Uh, that's a great. It's a great question. Great thought. Um, what i what, where that podcast episode came from is, you know, I, I, you don't have to be married very long to realize you don't need to be given advice when it's not asked for. Uh, my wife <laughs> hates it when I do, and even though I'm brilliant, you know, insightful, at least from my perspective, um, I'm not that way with my kids and my wife, and so, and, and the same way with clients. I've just discovered that we like your like your pastor friend i work with clients that are wonderful clients but they'll all have blind spots or they'll have a weak area and i feel like i could speak into that but generally speaking i've discovered that if you wait until they they recognize the need there we they'll be much more open to listening to what your advice is let them ask and then they'll be open. Uh, I used to just drop my brilliant golden nuggets of advice all over the place, and wasn't long before I, lo- I realized nobody was paying attention. And um, so I'm, I'm a little more judicious and careful. But the truth is, we we just need. I think it comes. We, we need to listen more than we talk. Uh, one of my big pet peeves is we don't. We don't listen enough. I just had a conference call with a, with a person who just dominated the entire call. It was four of us on the line, but this one person never stopped talking. I mean, I don't know if he took a breath. I don't think he did, uh, during the entire hour call. And, um, and that just turns everybody off. And so I think if, if, A, we learn to, li- no matter how passionate we are about wanting to share something in, in meetings, for instance, what I'll do is, I'll just sit there and listen and no matter, and if I have an idea, I'll just jot it down on a piece of paper and wait for an appropriate moment to bring it up. Um, I just think interrupting people is bad. Constant talking is bad. We learn so much more when we listen. And that way, when we do inject our ideas, they're a little more poignant and, and they're going to be considered a lot more when we do. So I, I just think that you've hit on something really big there, Kale, and that's just be careful about how much we How much advice we share with people when they have when they have it asked for it because it won 't go well well, I wish I could take credit for
0: it, Phil, but it was all you man it, it, <laughs> that I'm telling you, I listened to it two times in a row because I just wanted to make sure I heard it, and then of course, I blew it you know three days later, but it yeah. was so timely, maybe just for me, maybe nobody else, but that one really spoke to me a lot of great podcasts, and we 'll link the Phil Cook podcast into the show notes uh, your media group. You, you okay so you well, let's go back for just a moment you you lost sure. your job in the midwest you yep. you made some connections through uh networking and it, networking yep. is so much fun sometimes so you made these connections and you were able to kind of land some jobs get your feet under you in la and, and it wasn't the culture shock that that i think I, i've been to la i spent about 60 hours there one time it's a great place but i was glad to be home it's just a quick visit, but, but it was culture shock. And I'm sure it'd be even more now 10 years later, 15 years later. So, uh, coming out of the Midwest into LA, uh, was it a big culture shock? And how did you and the family kind of, uh, adapt to that with your beliefs? Cause I know that that's that uh, until you get in Jack Hayford's church it's probably a little different than what you were used to.
1: Yeah, and I, it wasn't a huge shock for me largely because during the time I was working in the Midwest, I was coming out here on a fairly regular basis doing some projects because this is kind of the heart of the media world. Right. And, um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a real shock for me. However, um, I, I do get it. I get people, I get parents calling me all the time saying my son is a film student. He's a Christian. He wants to come to LA to pursue his career, but I'm terrified. Should I let him? And things like that. And I, I think w- w- what I've discovered about Hollywood is, First of all, I would love to convey to to people across the country that Hollywood is not the enemy. Uh, I think if we could look at Hollywood as is a mission field, um, I think it would change our perspective about everything. You know, uh, one of my big big pet peeves with the Christian community is whenever we don't like something, we Get angry about it. We boycott them. We, you know, do petition drives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it would be like missionaries going to a third world country and surrounding a tribe and holding up signs and saying, We're not going to buy from you or we're not going to deal with you until you become a Christian. Well, boy, that's not, that's yeah. going to really bring them to Jesus, huh? <laughs> well, it's not going to work for missionaries. So why do we think it works in Hollywood? And one major, major denomination a number of years ago did a boycott of a major studio out here for seven years. The problem was, during those seven years, the studio's profits just went straight up, right through the roof. And after a while, the head of the the denomination called me and said... Would you set up a meeting between me and the, the CEO of the studio? Cause we're being, you know, this is embarrassing. We look like we're idiots. And so the bottom line is I think there are Christians in remarkably high places in Hollywood who are trying to be missionaries from the inside. And when we criticize Hollywood, when we're constantly complaining about Hollywood on social media or ministries who are doing, you know, boycotts and petition drives against movies or TVs that shows they don't like, that makes it more difficult for the people that are inside. I'll give you a great example. I had a meeting not long ago with a a really high level studio executive uh, at a at a television network, and uh, when I brought up Christianity, he said, "Oh, I know Christians. Those are the angry people." He said, "Those are the people that get mad every time I do a show they don't like. I get flooded with phone calls and 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 letters, and so all he knew of Christians were that we're the angry people, and it just hit me. We got to do a better job of of." Of engaging the culture today, because if that's our reputation, that's not a good reputation. So um, I, I just think that I, I I think we'll we'll do better by training up young filmmakers, young actors and actresses to come out here and um, make an impact in the industry. That's that's where I think we'll make a huge difference.
0: Now going back to your podcast, uh yep. Recently, you had a lady on that uh, overseas started a prayer ministry for folks in hollywood very intriguing show i yeah. i'm wanting to i want to make that connection potentially with her husband who is a uh who writes songs as a composer there yeah. in la i think that'd be a cool show but anyway what we'll, you know maybe later uh I'll hook you up. That, thank you that was a great that was a nice way for me to ask without asking but thank you uh that that was a great show <laughs> no, because- i have to say that was pretty smooth i was impressed <laughs> thank you <laughs> i've been married 20 years in one day okay. so yeah uh but I really – man, I felt – I was listening to the program, and I was so convicted by what you guys were saying. And I know that sounds real churchy, but honestly, it was almost heartbreaking to know, because I am no fan of of what comes out of there by and large, especially sure. being a father with a bunch of kids and, and seeing it just continue to deteriorate. But when I learned that there were people out there who were saying, please pray for me I, – I was taken back yeah. uh, years ago. Uh, The band Payable on Death, or P.O.D., the lead singer's name was Sonny. He's got big old long dreads, and he's been making music forever. I remember I was in radio, and there was an interview that Toby Mack did with Sonny from P.O.D. And he said, please pray. This is the Sonny guy who was kind of a secular Christian rock band. Please pray for me. These places are so dark. And I had forgotten that. And when I heard your podcast about the Prayer Network for Hollywood, it really took me back to that. And I felt so just disgusted with myself because I had not even thought about that in so long, realizing that there are brothers and sisters of ours out there who are in the ditches and trying to be the best they can, just like you and your family, to do yeah. to do your best and shine the light for Jesus. Man, that is that's something that, you know, out here in the Bible belt, we never even consider. How can we be better at that?
1: Well, it's interesting, um, and the truth is, it's perfectly natural that people would feel that way, I totally get it, um, but the truth is, most people at high levels of Hollywood weren't raised as Christians, they weren't raised in, Christians ho- in Christian homes or communities, and um, so it's perfectly natural, I have a feeling at the highest level of the uh, attorney world, though, most of them aren't Christians, or the highest level of the sales world, most of them aren't Christians, and so... They, the problem with Hollywood is they just have an enormous amount of influence over our culture because of the kind of things they produce. So my feeling, I learned early on, just to be me. And and the funny thing is, I don't pull back. I, everybody knows pretty much that I'm a I'm a Christian, but they also know I'm not a jerk, and um, and I care for them, and I love I love them, and and uh, try to reach out and engage with them. I think Christians so often come off as really condescending when it comes to people in the industry and I don't think that helps at all Um, uh, and the funny thing is I'll tell you a really funny thing is as Karen said on that podcast that by the way it was Karen Covell who's the founder of the Hollywood Prayer Network and you can, the, the listeners can find her at hollywoodprayernetwork.org. And her thing is just to really help uh, get that message across that that Hollywood is a mission field. And she travels around the country speaking and she's quite brilliant at it. And she was a producer for the, the biography channel for years and did a bunch of other pro- projects. And her husband is a composer, film composer, music. And um, so they're a fascinating couple. But the, one of the things Karen has said that she loves when she goes into studio executives or producers' offices and meets with them, at the end she'll often offer to pray. And she said she's never once been turned out. Even by raging non believers, people who aren't even remotely interested in being a Christian, love the fact that you're willing to pray for them. So that's an open door. That's a way to 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 start that conversation just by offering to pray for somebody and it's certainly worked with Karen and I think it's fascinating.
0: Well you know I love the I love that because how many times I know have I offered to pray for someone who I know is a believer, and it's almost like they're afraid that you're trying to be nosy about their situation or something. When these people who aren't believers, they're just genuinely moved by her compassion, by having enough time in her schedule to say, Hey, can I speak on your behalf for just a moment to the creator of all things?
1: True. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question.
0: And, and that that's a great that's a great lesson for us all. Even not just in Hollywood, but for people around us in our community who are the you know the dregs of society. I don't say that with any condemnation. I'm just saying those who you are afraid to actually to come to your church building on Sunday morning and sit on the front row because they may smell bad. it's the same thing. They all just need Jesus.
1: Period. Yeah, I, po- I posted on Instagram the other day that most of us spend our lives trying to avoid the very people that Jesus reached out to. <laughs> so uh, we, we, I think we've gotten our priorities a little bit whacked.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tell me about producing stuff for Hollywood. I know that you did the Hillsong, uh, Hillsong music yes, film. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughters love that, by the way. Um, Thanks. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch. It was, it was great. Uh, your wife is an actress. Yeah. So, so how does – You know, you grew up in Charlotte, so you know we have, I mean, it's Mayberry around here, right? So the majority (laughs) of the U.S. is Mayberry. You're in the, in the hot seat. How is it to be involved in the process out there? And, And like your wife films, stars in films and whatnot. How does that all work, man? It's just so foreign to us. It's almost like it's another planet
1: well it's you know what it's just it's it's really not um it's really not as strange it's it's a little bit different world, but it's it's more fun than selling shoes at the mall I'll have to say that. <laughs> And uh, it's really funny a lot of the, the with the work that I do I travel like crazy. I I mean I put up probably close to 200,000 miles a year and and just all over the world. And about 6 or 8 years ago <laughs> I had a real meltdown. I thought I can't travel anymore. I'm so sick of this. I, I mean I literally travel almost once a week. Hmm. And I thought if I have to get on one more plane I'm going to blow my brains out. I had a I walked up to LAX, the ticket counter at American Airlines at LAX, which is the fourth busiest airport in the world. Is that I'm walking up? The ticket lady said, "Oh, Mr. Cook, welcome back! So nice to see you." I thought, "Shoot, if that lady knows my name, I'm here way too much." Yeah. <laughs> and um, I just said I can't do it. And then I had this revelation that uh, I have no other skills. This is all. This is all I'm good at. What am I going to do? This Be is a my greeted? one big oh, thing. Hard? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be a greeter at Walmart if I don't do this. So I just sucked it up and I joined the airline club and I decided I'm going to spend a little money on my luggage and have nice luggage because I live in it. And, um, I just, I started to adapt to it. So I discovered that even the frustrating things about your job, whatever it might be, if you look at it from a little different perspective, you can, uh, figure out a way to deal with it more effectively. But Holly, you know, one of the things I do tell Christians when they come to Hollywood is lead with your Lead with your talent, not with your faith. You know, one of the things I do get far too frequently is young people coming out here who feel like God's called them to Hollywood to show Hollywood, you know, how to do it. They're, they're going to show Hollywood how to, how to change things and they're going to fix Hollywood. They're going to change the industry. And they end up being here for about six months to a year, and they leave completely beat up. Mm. And um, the thing is, you walk into a producer's office and tell him God sent you to change the industry, <laughs> he's going to laugh you out of the building. But if you go in there and you're an amazing actor, or you're an amazing musician, or a writer, or director, producer, whatever you do, that will get their attention. And I've discovered that they're willing to listen to whatever you have to say. If your talent impresses them, I've been on plenty of sets where, um, you know, they, nobody was a Christian on there. But because they were great, they were, you know, impressed with my ability or my talent or being there, they were willing to listen to whatever. So, I mean, trust me, Hollywood is a place where there are people that worship rocks and hug trees. So being a Christian is not that weird. And um, as long as you're really good at what you do, you, that, in, in fact, that's a good word for anybody at any job. If you're a salesperson or in insurance or education, whatever you do, if your talent is great, if you're good at what you do, people are much more apt to listen to whatever you have to say. So that opens doors for sharing your faith that, uh, you know, being terrible at what you do would never open.
0: So I've got sons. Okay. I've got three sons. My oldest two are aspiring filmmakers. And uh, they love your podcast as well, by the way.
1: Oh, great. Right. Um,
0: so 13 and 15 years old, uh, I have no plans to send them to Hollywood. And, and they're just, you know, they're making videos for church. They're flying drones in the yard. They're doing, you know, little things here and there for folks. Uh, but it may not be filmmaking that the person is interested in uh, in, in moving around anywhere. So as you travel 200 plus thousand miles a year, you see everything from every different level. Uh, what are some of the craziest things you've seen in your travels regarding your faith or someone else's and how it affected someone else?
1: Um, before I answer that question, let me go back to your sons for sure. just a quick second. Um, I'm, it's funny that – it's interesting that you said they made videos for churches. Mm-hmm. What – what I'm trying to get across to people is churches are a fabulous place to develop filmmaking abilities. Mm. Um, I, I can name you two or three guys I know right now that have amazing TV commercial contracts or feature film deals who got their start filming in churches. So um, uh, churches are making movies nowadays. They're doing an amazing number of short films and short videos and if you're a young person and, or you're a father of a young person listening to this, get them plugged into a church and get them volunteering or helping on the video or the media team there. Because I'll tell you something, they can open or- doors. I was in New Zealand uh, just about six months ago speaking at a couple churches there and, and one of the churches had just done a major feature film that has gotten international distribution and it was a church. Wow. And so, um, I, the, the, A filmmaker from Hillsong has now got a big contract in New York doing commercials and feature films. And uh, a friend of mine who was the filmmaker, the video guy at at Elevation Church up in Charlotte, Mm -hmm. now has a commercial deal here in L.A. He's doing A-list commercials for major companies. So um, there's nothing – I wish more people would look at the possibility of helping your church out with videos because – it could be a real career launcher for people. So that's my word about them. Encourage them, have them keep doing that because it could, it could end up with some amazing results. Um, re- regarding weird things I've seen out there as far as being a Christian, um, I, <laughs> trust me, there are so many weird things about being a Christian. That's one of the things I love about being a Christian. You never run out of weird things you see. <laughs> um, I don't know where I would actually begin. Give me, hone in on that a little bit more. Okay. Give me a little uh, more let's clip. just go
0: overseas. Since you spend time out of the states, we already yeah. know that you're living in like a really weird place. We'd consider Hollywood, but yeah. even, even weird, crazier stuff that you might have seen, say overseas working on some sets or, or interacting with someone from a different, uh, an entirely different country. Yeah. Way of well, what's,
1: what's interesting is people overseas generally don't have the preconceptions that a lot of Americans have. So, for instance, um, they don't understand that there are there, you know, – they're supposed to be Christian movies that have altar calls at the end and don't have cuss words in them. So they're making major movies for, for primetime te- secular television that are driven by Christian – a, a desire to convert people to Christ. So right. it, when you, when you overseas, people don't have those kind of things. And it's a really interesting thing to watch. Uh, we've done a lot of work in India. We have a nonprofit called the influence lab. And um, we use that to try to raise money to help train media professionals overseas, Christian media professionals overseas. And we've been to India four times where we trained filmmakers and writers and musicians and actors and um, we did a competition for short films. One of the problems there is that there's so much stress on young people with exams. You know, you you, you want your kid to raise your kid to do really well, so he can help carry the family right. and take over for you when he's grown. And um, there's as a result, there's enormous pressure when exams come around. And when kids don't do well on exams, the suicide rate skyrockets in India among young people. And because it's so embarrassing to go fa- back to your family and tell them you didn't pass, and the pressure is so great. And so we encouraged a fest- kind of a, a project, let's do some short films on that subject, and we raised the money to help them do it, and young Indian filmmakers did some remarkable, remarkable things that had been playing all over the country. And so – uh, people overseas – I I spent a number of years training 60 filmmakers who are all Christians in Russia. Now all 60 of them are working at the Russian film studios in Moscow. <laughs> so you can get the gospel into powerful places. You know, I, my, One of my feelings is if you reach the artist, you can reach the world because they're going to go out and make films and music and television shows and write books. And it, it just the, – the story grows. So I'm just a big believer in what we can do to help train media professionals – Internationally, who happen to be Christians, to share their faith in a much more high-impact uh, uh, high
0: way. So let's bring it back down to the uh, to the okay. Cook household. Cook with an E, by the way, guys. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's so hard. We say to get up and read our Bible every day. It's so hard to say prayers specifically with our wife before we go to bed at night, or. You know, maybe take uh, 30 minutes for some intimate time of meditation. Don't take that the wrong way with sure. Jesus to, to gain knowledge, wisdom, discernment from him, either through prayer, you know, reading the Bible, studying, something like that. Man, how does Phil Cook traveling 200,000 miles a year on an airplane? How does he, how, how has he balanced those things by raising children, being married? to the same lady all these years. How? What's your secret, man? Because a lot of guys are curious right now. How does this guy hold this stuff together?
1: I don't have a secret, but I'll tell you what I've learned. And that is, uh, by the way, I have two daughters. Both are grown. One's 30, one's 33. I would have liked, the, liked a son, but the risk of three daughters was too great, so we quit. <laughs> um, He's right, guys. I've got I, two. That's enough. <laughs> Our oldest Kelsey has a, a grand has our granddaughter and a grandson. So we did finally got the grandson oh. along there. But here's what I've discovered. Place, location, and time are absolutely critical. So what I've learned is um number one, find the time of day when you're most creative, when when you're most thought you know, when your thinking is clearest. For me it's early morning from six AM to noon. I can write, I can think, I can create like a crazy person. After lunch. Not so much. I can do interviews, I can do meetings and travel and things like that, but I'm not going to create anything significant after after lunchtime. Uh, other people, my wife is more of a night person. She really blows up at night. That's when she wants to do her creative work. And what I've discovered is, you know, we all we all op- right in circadian rhythm. Some people are morning people, some nights, some afternoon there's a small sliver of who are afternoon people, whatever it is, find your time and then block it as much as you can. Certainly a lot of your listeners have a day job and they can't have total control over their schedule. But for instance, when I work full time, I found out I realized I was a morning person so I would come into the office 2 hours early. I came in at 6 a.m. every morning. I wrote my first two books in that 2 hour period from 6 to 8 in the morning when the phones weren't ringing, nobody was coming in, nobody bothered me, nobody interrupted me just because I could focus so well. So whether it's, you know, devotions, reading the Bible, studying, praying whatever, figure out a time when that's the best for you. Me, it's morning. So I get up and the first thing I do is is go in and read the Bible, read the newspaper, pray, do all that stuff, write, whatever I want to do where I need to be at my best. Uh, that's important. The other thing I would encourage people to do is find the place that's best for you. Um, you'll never be at your best if you're not in the right place. For instance, with me... I can't have the TV on. I can't have the radio on. I can't have phone calls going. I've got a, I think a bank vault would probably be the best location for me simply because I have such a, I'm so easily distracted. Other people, however, I, I've read some research recently that the dull roar of coffee shop conversation is very inspiring to some people. So if, if that's what it takes for you to read the Bible or write or journal or do whatever you do, Go to a coffee shop, but whatever it is, if you can figure out the time of of day that you're at your best, figure out the place where you're at your best, you put those two things together and you would be amazed at the, the productivity, how much it'll shoot up. Um, how remarkable your work will, will become, and um, it'll change everything. I think we spend too much of our lives ra- you know, just living randomly. We think, okay, I'll, st- I'll read that book when I can, or I'll pray when I can, or I'll read the Bible when I can. No, no, no. You've got to come up with some kind of a system uh, that will help make it happen, because if you don't, I can just tell you it will never, ever happen. So we have to be deliberate. Very deliberate and intentional, absolutely, absolutely. Being random, just I've discovered I I will just never get – it's funny. I'll just never get around to it. Working out is the same way for me, by the way. (laughs) I can't just say, you know, I'll maybe work out this afternoon. If I don't do it in the morning, I won't do it. If I don't get it over with, it's not going to happen. So that's absolutely critical. So
0: what you did was just took away everyone's excuse to do everything they've always wanted to do because you wrote two books with a (laughs)
1: full-time job two hours
0: before before you had to clock in in the morning.
1: And I know people that do far greater things with far more restrictions in their life. And so it's, it's you know, you just – it all depends on how committed you are. Are you serious about doing what you feel like God's called you to do or not? And if you are, you'll do it. If you're not, you'll come up with excuses. It's just really that simple. And, you know, writing is a great example. I don't wait for inspiration. If you're waiting for inspiration to do creative work, you're an idiot. Um, You know, the art of writing is the art of connecting the seat of your pants to the seat of a chair. Mm. You just have to show up and the inspiration will come. And I think it's that way with every aspect of our lives. Showing up, you know, is 90% of the deal. And that's what makes things happen.
0: Now, I know we're getting close to running out of time, but I, I want to ask you real quick here. You changed the name of your business after. I don't know, 20 plus years. 35 years. 35 years. You yeah. changed the name. You rebranded. Was this like losing your job at 36 and starting over? Or were you much more comfortable with that? And so it's time. This is who we are. Let's go.
1: Well, we, you know, it's funny you bring that up because we, part of the things we do as a company is help organizations change their name. So whether you're a, a business or a nonprofit or a church or a ministry, we have a process. We walk you through to help you, you know, be effective at changing your name. Um, so if we screwed this up, it would look really, really bad. We <laughs> we, we wanted to, we wanted to make sure we did not drop the ball on this one. So we were prepared, and we put a lot of thought and effort and time into it. And and essentially, what happened with us is one of the reasons I've written on my blog before about when it's time to change your name. And and our situation was we just do different things. When I started, I was a director and a producer of of films, videos, TV. But now we do and we still do that, but we also do a lot more. We do strategy, we do websites, we do social media, we consult with people, we coach with we coach leaders. We help leaders tell their story in today's incredibly distracted world. And today that involves a lot more than just producing videos or films. So, uh we realized that the name Cook Pictures, we took that name from the old studio days, Warner Brothers Pictures, Universal Pictures, we took that name and we realized it doesn't really reflect all that we do. So after a lot of thought, a lot of strategy, a lot of thinking, and a lot of coming up with different options for names, we landed on the Cook Media Group because it really said more about the whole team that we have and what we're capable of helping leaders accomplish and what we can help organizations do out there. So it wasn't it was as difficult – I mean, it's difficult because, trust me, I've – I've done so much with that other name for 25, 30 years that just switching around took a lot of work, but we did it. We had a schedule. The way we rolled it out, was we were very deliberate about it, and uh, so far, we've got nothing but really great results, so it's been fantastic.
0: Awesome. His name is Phil Cook. He's one of my favorite podcasters on the planet. You guys should read his books, read his blog, listen to his podcast. You can watch your podcast as well. You have a video. It's the same thing, but you can yeah, watch it.
1: It's a- Pretty much the same thing on YouTube. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. Just look for Phil Cook and it'll pop up there. And if you, if you prefer watching over listening, we can do that. Yeah. yeah.
0: So he's got a great head of hair as well. I'm so, <laughs>
1: so jealous of <laughs> these guys with thing. hair, man. Yeah. I'm just grateful at my age. Hey,
0: man, it'd be great at 45. <laughs> Are you kidding? So, uh, Phil, <laughs> <laughs> I what? so, I so sincerely appreciate your time. It's, it's been awesome. Um, and, and very encouraging. I, I know the guys listening will appreciate it as well. So thank you again. We'll, we'll, put all these links in the show notes uh, for folks to be able to find you and kind of dig into this thing go back and listen to the the previous shows he's got so much good information and the books man I'm, I'm reading Unique I've got the Unique Planner okay um so uh it, it's all there, man. And just
1: well just tickled I, out. I gotta you. say I love I love what you're doing. I'm honored to be on here and I'll just be your I'll just be your correspondent from Hollywood whenever you need to hear what's going on out here. Just to let me know.
0: Absolutely, man. Well thanks again so much. God bless you, Phil. Appreciate you being on.
1: Take care. Thanks, man. Bye bye.
0: Okay, Phil, I'll be uh getting back with you as we take you up on those offers that you made throughout the program really appreciate you being here hey remember it's philcook.com it's with an e and there's links in the show notes by the way appreciate you guys listening sharing this with your buddies and uh, even some reviews there online are always great hey uh, if you're looking for a positive influence in your life i cannot i cannot not recommend enough phil's podcast check it out philcook.com. until next time guys thank you so much for listening god bless every one of you we'll see you thank you for listening to the modern christian men podcast you can find us online at modern Christianmen.com.